Welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Now, if you haven't been listening to the show long, it doesn't take long to figure out that I love the topic of science and faith. It's one that we focus on a lot. Just the last two weeks, I was talking with Melissa Kane Travis on her new book, Science in the Mind of the Maker. Uh, and there are two reasons for this. Uh, first of all, I love science. I find it fascinating and interesting. Second of all, I find that it's the number one question I get from students. And so if I'm going to be ready to answer student questions when, I, when I'm doing apologetic talks, I have to know the answers to scientific questions. And so that's one reason I spend a lot of time talking about it. And in the past, I've had uh, people on the show like Jeff Swearink and Krista Bontrager discussing scientific issues from Reasons to Believe. And now I have the awesome privilege of having the founder of Reasons to Believe, Dr. Hugh Ross, on my show today, joining me to discuss his new book. Hugh, thank you so much for joining me. All right, my pleasure. So Hugh Ross, if those of you guys don't know, is the founder of Reasons to Believe, a science apologetics organization. Uh, he's an astronomer, and has, uh, the organization he's created is dedicated to integrating scientific fact and biblical faith. He's written books, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, and Navigating Genesis, along with a lot more books. Uh, Hugh, do you have an idea how many books have you written on the topic of science and faith? Well, 17 are uh, published. I'm working on number 18 right now. Oh, very interesting. Now, do you, can you give a little heads up to those uh, listening of what is number 18 about? Number 18 will be a sequel to Improbable Planet. Okay. Uh, basically exploring the latest scientific discoveries on how critical ice is to the existence of human civilization, how fine-tuned it must be, but also making the point there's an extremely narrow time window in Earth's history that will close within a few centuries or less in which we can enjoy the current extreme climate stability. I'm also going to take on the climate uh, change controversy and uh, what we can do uh, to stabilize the climate as best as we can for the next few centuries and how we can prepare uh, for the next coming ice age because one is coming and uh, we need to get ready. Wow, sounds like a very interesting book. And I know uh, I recently, this, this summer, I, I did a few talks uh, at student camps on intelligent design. And one aspect of intelligent design I put in was from your book, Improbable Planet, looking at how Earth became our home and just the fine-tuning that is required for Earth to hold advanced life, which that book really talks about. So that second one sounds interesting. Well, thank you. Um, now, so this book that you've written, it actually came out yesterday, September 4th. We're recording this on September 5th. Uh, is different than anything you've ever written before. Uh, it's not a science and faith. Have you written something like this? No, this is the first time I've written anything like this. And, uh, you know, we're not just scientists with reasons to believe. Uh, we are scientists evangelists. And so this is a book that is predominantly written uh, to motivate uh, followers of Jesus Christ uh, to equip themselves uh, to effectively use the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture and particularly to target what I call the greatest unreached people group, which would be uh, STEM professionals, okay. people in science, engineering, uh, technology. As you're probably well aware, it's not just scientists and engineers, but all the people who work with these folks or look up to them that are influenced, and you just said it earlier, uh, in terms of uh, people having a problem with a Christian faith, science is the biggest issue. Yeah. And so uh, I'm basically showing people, hey, if you prepare good reasons, and especially if you can prepare good reasons and present them with Christian demeanor, you will see God supernaturally bringing people to you, 
And I think all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we need regular experiences of uh, God working miracles in our life. And I argue that this is a guaranteed way to make that happen. Well, and that's exactly what this book talks about. Uh, your new book that just came out, Always Be Ready, A Call to Adventurous Faith. And, and what it is, is is your story after story after story of just divine appointments, it seems like, uh, of God bringing people into your life uh, as you are ready to defend and prepare and share the gospel. And so kind of what were your, your main motivations as we jump into the book, Always Be Ready? Uh, what were your main motivations of writing it? Well, you know, I've been a pastor for four decades now, so I'm, I'm a research scientist and a pastor. But I notice in my church and other churches I speak in, typically less than 10% of the really dedicated Christians in the church uh, are doing any kind of attempt at reaching their non-Christian friends and associates. And so what can I do to motivate uh, more people to get involved in that uh, opportunity? And I look at it as a command. The Bible commands us to do this. And so how can we get the percentage from 10%? My goal is to try to get it up to at least uh, 40%. And uh, I'm basically saying, hey, this is too much fun to miss out on. Yeah. Are you going to see God do amazing things? And on purpose, I included lots of stories from people who are not scientists, because I don't want people to think, well, it's just Hugh. He's a scientist. He's a pastor. He's been studying the Bible for decades. Of course, this happens to him. But my whole point is uh, it can happen to any uh, follower of Christ. And so I include uh, stories from truck drivers and, uh, you know, people who don't have any science background. You know, if they will follow through in First Peter 3.15, it will happen to, to them. It will happen to anyone. Absolutely. You know, and, and as, re- as I was reading through the book, it reminded me a lot of when I was a missionary, I was drawn to reading missionary biographies and just uh, hearing just stories of what these amazing things that missionaries did and just the confidence and just the encouragement that was to me as a missionary. And so now since I've been in apologetics for a few years, I found that I haven't, at least I haven't found a book like that for apologetics. Uh, a lot of what I'm reading is simply arguing for certain, you know, you know, arguments from science or reliability in the New Testament or the resurrection or whatever. And so I found this very refreshing uh, to read. And this was kind of like a biography, just a compilation of stories of how apologetics can be used. And, and it was very encouraging to me. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because that was really one of my motivations that it would be like one of those missionary annals books, only in the context of science apologetics. And that's what I found it to be. And, and you know, I think a lot of books uh, maybe have a story within kind of a chapter arguing for a certain apologetic content, and you kind of include one little story to explain something. Yours is mainly just stories uh, showing how this has been done and, and really, I think, encouraging people uh, to do it in the future. And so that was awesome. Uh, and I, well, I was able you. to do this because I've already written so many books on the scientific tools. Yeah. This is a book trying to motivate people. Hey, use the tools. Absolutely. And I think you did a good job at that. Yeah. Now, Bob Stewart, who uh, you should know, right? There works at Reasons to Believe. He wrote in an email question. He says, how long have you desired to write a book like this? Well, I've desired to write a book like this for, gee, a good 40 years. Uh, But I also realized that the timing was critical that before I write this book, I have to give people some really solid, credible science apologetics tools. And so that's why I dedicated myself to writing 17 other books first. (laughs) Uh, But now that those uh, books have been completed, I says, now's the time 
Because if I had written this book first, people would say, well, this is great. Where are the tools? Yeah. But now that they, the tools are out there, I think this is the right time to write the book. And that Plus, makes a lot of sense. Uh, like any missionary annals book, it takes a lifetime to accumulate the experiences. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's different now than I'm older than when I was, say, in my 20s. Yeah. There's a lot to pull from. Right. Know? And as I read it, it's like, wow, this, there's just so much that he has done. It's very encouraging. So kind of going a little bit back to the science, uh, you mentioned that earlier we talked about, you know, students uh, having scientific questions. I find frequently uh, people tell me I'm not a Christian. I believe in science. Uh, Kind of this dichotomy. Why is it, do you think, that people uh, believe that science argues against Christianity in the Bible? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but about 95% of all the science faith books published in the Christian arena uh, actually do more damage uh, than, than good in the sense that they're using science that doesn't have high credibility and integrity in the eyes of uh, non-Christian science scholars. And so the principle here of reasons to believe is we field test our tools. We test them first on the leading non-Christian scientists. And if they say, hey, this has got credibility and integrity, then we're confident that we can put this in the hands of lay people and they will not be embarrassed and also it's going to blunt this idea in the non-Christian community uh, that science is the enemy of the Christian faith. No, it's only bad science that's the enemy of the Christian faith. It's bad theology that's the enemy of uh, people uh, getting the wrong idea about what the Bible really teaches. And that kind of goes along with what uh, I would talk to and did a show with Jeff Swearing, who's one of your colleagues there at Reasons to Believe. Uh, and he said, and I said, what's it like being a Christian in science and, in, you know, in astrophysics? And he goes, as long as you're a good scientist, they don't they don't really care. It, do, it doesn't come up as much in conversations. If you're doing good scientific work, you're respected. And if you're doing good scientific work, they'll ask you the spiritual questions. Yeah. Uh, but you if you're not, uh, they're going to ignore you. Yeah. And so in your book, you also mention that it's kind of a problem within the church. And you use a statistic or you mention it from Barna, which I also use in my talk on science of faith, where it says that about 52 percent of students want to go into kind of a STEM researcher program. But youth pastors and leaders are only talking about it about one percent of the time. Right. Um, do you have ideas of what can we do to talk about this more with students to help them see that these two things are not in contradiction? Well, I think we're going to have to reach the youth leaders. And your, your typical youth pastor is someone uh, who uh, is not doing well in science, has avoided science. Uh, he went to a seminary where he could take uh, classes where he could avoid all math and science. So it's not surprising they don't want to deal with STEM subjects uh, when they're dealing with Christian youth. And so I think if we're going to get anywhere. Uh, we need to talk to those people first and uh, let them know their resources. I mean, they don't have to be the expert. That's kind of the message I put in the book is that, you know, if you're a pastor in a church, uh, you need to draw upon the resources amongst your lay people. Um, you know, personally, I don't think there's a senior pastor uh, doctrine that I see in the New Testament. It's always supposed to be a team of ministers. And so, yeah, don't expect God to give you everything you need. He wants you to engage other leaders in the church. And that's something you've done well, but that's not always been part of your story. 
And so kind of coming into uh, your book, Always Be Ready, uh, it begins with your personal story growing up. So kind of with, you know, the listeners that maybe don't know you very well, I think there's some unique aspects that not very many people know about you. But kind of in chapter four, you talk about how God reached you. How did he do that? Were you born in a Christian family? How did it work out? No, I was not born in a Christian family, uh, but I tell stories of how I had chance encounters with Christians I didn't even know were Christians, uh, but it had a lifetime impact on me. Uh, people tell me the favorite story about my growing up years uh, was a grade one teacher I had for just six weeks. I mean, here I was in grade one. I was failing everything. Uh, I was uh, doomed to repeat grade one. Um, and because I was on the autistic spectrum, I couldn't control uh, my hand to make numbers and letters. I wasn't talking, so I couldn't prove that I could read. Uh, but this teacher, uh, she saw frustration on my face, held me after school and asked me questions about 30 books on her desk. And uh, she said, you don't have to talk. All you need to do is nod your head for yes or shake your head for no. She figured out I had read those books. Wow. So she said, I'm going to pass you into grade two, even though your report card says you're failing everything. And so I got into grade two and they put me in the last chair of the grade two classroom. That was for the class dummy. I was at the bottom of the class. I quickly figured out that what that last chair meant because of all the teasing I got from the other students. So I said, I'm going to do something. I actually spent two to three hours a day from that first day of grade two, practicing how to hold a pencil and make my hand do letters and numbers. Bottom line is at the end of grade two, I was in the first chair. Wow. Now, if you go ahead 28 years, I get a phone call uh, from that teacher. She's 93 years of age at that time. And uh, I happened to be in Vancouver, and uh, she said, uh, can you come over for tea? So my uh, bride, my new bride, uh, Kathy and I went over to her place for tea, and she told me she had followed my career from grade one all the way through to my postdoctoral research at Caltech. She had newspaper clippings on her uh, apartment wall there, and I found out she was a believer. And she told me from the time I was in her classroom for just those six weeks, she committed herself to pray for me. Wow. I mean, I had no idea she was a believer. Uh, but I thank her for the fact that she didn't let me fail grade one, because that would have made a huge uh, difference in my future life. And the fact that she prayed for me all those years, I think, explains why I had like these chance encounters. I mean, I tell a story of how my parents were dragging me through downtown Vancouver, and uh, there was a street preacher preaching on the sidewalk. I heard maybe 14 or 15 seconds of a sermon before my parents dragged me away from this preaching nut. Uh, but those 14 or 15 seconds I heard stuck, yeah. and it got me thinking. And years later, uh, that actually was a motivation for me to pick up a Gideon Bible that had been given to me in a public school. So things like that. I mean, God has his way of getting through to you no matter how serious the barriers are. Yeah. And that story for me was so inspiring as a high school teacher for me, uh, thinking about, man, how she went kind of that extra mile, really looking out for you and, and helping you along and then following you after school. I uh, went, wow, how can I do that uh, also with uh, my students? How can I be more like her kind of in a way? 
Uh, just really cool. I loved hearing that story. And so you mentioned briefly in that that you are on the autistic spectrum. Um, and this kind of led to not being able to speak uh, in, in certain ways uh, during that time. How has that kind of uh, impacted you now in your research? You talk a little bit in your book about how uh, that, you know, changes how you interact in uh, in um, debates with atheists. I've heard you mention that before. In fact, I've even had people comment to me and they go, wow, I watch Hugh Ross debate these atheists and they mock him and he just sits there and he's so calm and collected. Uh, how has that kind of impacted the work that you do? Well, uh, I've got the, you know, everybody on the autistic spectrum is different from everybody else. So my autism doesn't necessarily mark for everybody else on the spectrum. But for me, what I notice is my emotional responses are delayed by two, three or four hours. <laughs> so I do get offended when people insult me in debates, uh, but I don't really feel the insult until the debate has been over for an hour. Wow. So, uh, you know, when I go home from the debate, then I have the emotional turmoil. Yeah. But during the debate, it's like I don't even notice I'm being insulted. And so, so and this also kind of plays a role because, as you mentioned, you were kind of uh, slow in, in the learning in that aspect of second grade and everything. So when you talk about be, always being ready, I think this was so fascinating in the book of you talked about you being kind of the least likely, I guess, to be prepared, uh, especially face to face conversations. And so, you know, with people who are nervous in that aspect, really, you kind of, I think, make the point in the book that anyone can be prepared. You can go out. God calls us to go share and anyone can be ready for that. Well, it's because God always goes with you. Like when I walk into an auditorium of angry atheists, I realize I'm not walking in by myself. Yeah. The Holy Spirit's there with me. And so confident that the fact that he's there to back me up uh, makes the, uh, the difference. But yeah, I mean, I kind of address in the book in that chapter that there's this perception that the people who have, quote, the gift of evangelism are the natural salespeople. While being on the autistic spectrum, I'm about the farthest away you could be from being a natural salesperson. But my point in the book is that the command is to every Christian to share their faith, yeah. which means there's with it a promise no matter what your personality is, no matter what your uh, defects are or gifts are, the Holy Spirit can partner with you to make you a successful evangelist. Just trust him to do it. Absolutely. But I also have to give credit to uh, neurotypical people. I mean, uh, individuals like my wife came alongside of me and basically worked with me to say, hey, if you want people to really respond to you, it might help if you don't just stare at the floor, but actually look <laughs> at them once in a while. And so they've been working with me literally for decades on uh, how uh, to get around my autistic um, uh, problems. Yeah. And so now I can look people in the eye. Um, although I got to be careful because if I focus too much in trying to make eye contact with people, then I forget where I am in my lecture. <laughs> uh, and my wife always jokes, how come you got so many visuals built into your talk? It's mainly so I don't lose my place, because if I focus on eye contact, I'm going to be in big trouble. That's a good that's a good reminder. Uh, good tip. Uh, OK, so kind of go back to your story. Then you're not in a Christian home. You, uh, you, you have these random encounters with Christians. What was it that finally led you uh, in your uh, kind of discovery of the truth of Christianity? Well, it was my studies in astronomy. Um, again, I think my autism is a factor there. I mean, I really got fascinated by astronomy when I was seven years of age. 
I mean, uh, I was bringing home five books on physics and astronomy from the public library every weekend. I mean, that almost became an obsession with me. Uh, but it was through my studies in astronomy that I realized the universe has a beginning. If the universe has a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. And so starting in age 16, I tried to find that cosmic beginner. Now, I began by looking for that cosmic beginner in the writings of Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes. I mean, I read their philosophical books and found that they were not really uh, helping much. They had the wrong ideas of space and time. And eventually I decided to go through the world's holy books. Uh, but I quickly discovered is that these books have a terrible track record on scientific and historical accuracy and uh, no predictive power. But I finally picked up my Gideon Bible and realized this book was different. Uh, it was accurate in every way I could test it on geography, science, and history. And unlike the other books, it had predictive power. In fact, what really blew me away as a 17-year-old is seeing Big Bang cosmology in many different books of the Bible. And I realized in science, the idea of a Big Bang universe uh, wasn't even on the uh, radar of scientists until the early 1920s. Mm -hmm. And yet here's this ancient book writing about Big Bang cosmology thousands of years ago. And that wasn't the only example. I found hundreds of places in the Bible where it was predicting future scientific discoveries. And so just before I gave my life to Christ, I went through the whole Bible and calculated the probability that it could accurately predict all these scientific discoveries without the Bible authors being inspired by the creator of the universe and found that that probability was far more remote than the second law of thermodynamics being reversed and killing everybody I know. <laughs> and so I said, well, in that case, since I trust the second law of thermodynamics, I have to put at least as much trust in the, the message of this book and the author of this book. And that's when I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible. That happened when I was a sophomore in college, but it literally took me another eight years before I got to know a Christian. Wow. And uh, that's because I tried to find Christians in Canadian churches. Uh, you think that that would be a good place to find them? And it is if you know which churches to go to. But every church I tried was either a cult or it was filled with people who didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. And it literally took coming to uh, Caltech. Uh, for me to meet uh, serious Christians who could guide me to a good church. So how did your parents respond to this newfound faith of yours? Well, they were not happy when they discovered what had happened to me. And uh, they were especially not happy when I left my post at Caltech uh, to become an apologetics and evangelism minister in a church near Caltech. And when I finally launched Reasons to Believe. However, after several years, they realized, wait a minute, you haven't dropped your science. You're using your science. You're still reading the scientific literature. And then when they really appreciated that what I was doing was tapping into the scientific literature to develop new evidences for the Christian faith, that they said, well, okay, we, we don't believe, but we can accept that you're really using your science uh, for some good. And about 20 years after that, both of my parents uh, became Christians. Wow. In fact, the story of my dad is he was actually leading people to faith in Christ before he became a Christian. 
Now, can you share that really quick? Because I thought that was fascinating part of it when he was at your lecture. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, it got to a point where, I mean, first of all, they attended a talk I gave in Hollywood. And that was such a dramatic event. Even a fist fight broke out in the middle of my talk that uh, they basically said, well, all the stories we heard about Hollywood, we now are, know are true. And anytime you're speaking, we want to go there if we're, if we're in the area. So uh, when I was in Vancouver where they lived, they made it a point to go to all my events. And my dad uh, went with me to an event where I spoke to about 200 atheist students. And, uh, you know, late in the night, I found him at the back table uh, debating a bunch of these atheist students and uh, found out that he had led three of them to Christ. So I said, well, Dad, have you been holding out on me? Have you made a spiritual commitment? He says, oh, no, 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 I'm not a Christian. I'm not ready for this. But I've heard you speak enough. I knew exactly what to tell them. These <laughs> students. But it was about six and, uh, months found after out that, that he, that he uh, did give his life to Christ. Wow, that that was I I just I couldn't help but laugh when I heard that just to how he jumped in, uh, in that conversation. And so uh, Claudia just commented on the Facebook live stream right now and said, uh, "Have you written a book on all the biblical scientific predictions that you found during that time you were studying?" Uh, it's not in a single book, but many of my books uh, will actually take some of that evidence and describe it in the light of the latest scientific discoveries. I mean, a couple of examples would be why the universe is the way it is and hidden treasures in the book of Job and navigating Genesis. Those three books would include probably 60 percent of what I had to research in uh, my teenage years, late teenage years. OK, so hopefully that helps. Now, we only have a few minutes left in part one, um, but we we talked at the beginning about this idea of being prepared, and that's what your book is talking about, always be ready uh, and be prepared. How is it that you found that as you learned information, you were just prepared to have some of these conversations? Well, I think a lot of it is listening to the non-Christians you're talking to. I mean, if you listen in a compassionate way, they will tell you what their barriers are. They will tell you what they need. And I found that particularly the case when I was engaging non-Christians at uh, Caltech. Uh, they were quite open and saying, look, uh, if you want me to respond, this is the kind of evidence I need. And so I would go out and do that kind of research. So the next time I met them, I could actually share with them what they were asking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, now again, listening to, to the non-Christians you engage. And also I tell them, look, uh, sometimes I say, you know, you were pretty obnoxious when you were presenting this. Well, tell me, share with me where you saw me being obnoxious. I mean, that I think is the most challenging part. It's one thing to prepare good reasons. It's quite another thing to deliver them with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. That's the key point of 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But I find non-Christians are very eager to tell you uh, where you're not displaying a Christian demeanor. So it's just simply asking them and then responding appropriately. And that's a good thing to hear from them, to be able to say, oh, wow, okay, I didn't present that very clearly or uh, with compassion. I need to maybe change my attitude, my presentation, because really you're, the way you present something can affect how they understand the content if we're rude about it. Well, I think that uh, they listen to our demeanor much more than they do our words. Yeah. And so uh, getting good feedback on your demeanor, I think, will help. 
Absolutely. You know, and I found too, you know, I, I often was looking for opportunities to share the Christ with people and, and just nothing was coming up. And it, I took a class on the evidence for the resurrection, wrote my final research paper on the resurrection. And it was, I think within a month I was on an airplane and someone brings up, you know, there's no good reason to believe anyone died and came back from the dead. And I just thought, well, how amazing is God that the moment I, I really study this topic, dive into it, then a conversation comes up around that topic. And well, a lot of the stories and always be ready are exactly in that context. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're going to have to take our break right now. Uh, our time is up for part one. But when we come back for part two, uh, we're going to be talking about some of the stories uh, that are mentioned throughout this book that are just so inspiring uh, for you to get out and share the faith and then also respond to some of your questions. I got a lot of questions from listeners that came in. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in part two when we come back. So, Hugh, thank you so much for joining me in this first part of our discussion. You're welcome. We've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe on his new book, Always Be Ready. You can get that for 20% off if you go to shop.reasons.org. Put in the coupon code RYAN20, RYAN20 for 20% off that new book. Also, go to reasons.org and check out the amazing work that all of the scholars there at Reasons to Believe are doing. If you've enjoyed this show, you know I don't ask for donations or money, but I would love for you to share this with your family, your friends, maybe even give it a rating on your podcast app. Help other people find the show that you also enjoy. I would really appreciate that. Also, if you have questions or comments about this show or for future episodes, you can send those in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com, facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat at ryanpauly 3 or text them in at 714-989-6927. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Sip coffee, think deeply. This is Ryan Polly with Coffee House Questions. Just